Welcome to Warning Bells. I'd like today to welcome Captain Dennis Tazier to the Warning Bells podcast. Captain Tazier has been a pilot for more than 36 years, starting with service in the U.S. Air Force flying the KC-135, including deployments to Desert Storm. He has been with American Airlines for 30 years and is currently a Boeing 737 captain. He's also the Communication Chair, Spokesperson, and Investor Relations Committee Chair for the Allied Pilots Association, the union that represents 15,000 American Airlines pilots. Dennis has been featured in 11 documentaries and dozens of media stories on the 737 MAX tragedies. He continues his work on behalf of the Allied Pilots Association on important safety issues to this day, to include the post-pandemic fight to ensure that proper training and safety standards are not overcome by commercial interests. Dennis, you took a very strong position that pilots were not informed about MCAS. There was inadequate training. And I think the way you described it to people truly made it extremely informative. So I just want to commend you for that leadership and that courage. You're very kind. I did it on behalf of a union, the Allied Pilots Association, 15,000 pilots in American. And hats off to you as an individual. Now, I believed in what we did and some of the cuts from those documentaries and other news reports on it. Believe me, there was a behind the scenes and it was pilots thinking, this crap could have killed us. Yeah. My yeah. kid's dad. And the energy was very high. It was one that you didn't only disrespect me, you disrespected every passenger that is on my airplane and my family. And some of the things that we thought were almost like a, an entryway to, oh, that couldn't happen, ended up being the reality. And I can get into some of those details. But the most interesting thing about this is that while this has been some time, it lives fresh in memories of certainly the families that continue that, that sorrow of loss and in, in folks like yourself. But the things we're battling today, post-pandemic, pilot training, reducing that, commercial interest, profits over people, continue to rise up. I, the last time I saw you was at the March Safety Summit, and that messaging was still there. I thought, this is PTSD time. The same issues, we're not talking about a specific aircraft or horridly designed and malice attempt to, to narrow that margin of safety, but those same issues, the human beings that keep these airplanes safe are continually being pushed to the edge and there's a rationale that, you know, we'll be fine. You'll be fine until something happens and then you'll have a safety summit. Yeah. The safety summit, it was completely reactive. I mean, these kinds of things that should have been going on a long time, it shouldn't have required some near miss incidents to drive that. And I 100% agree with you that some of the same variables are in place today that were in place before the MAX disasters and also before other plane crashes. When you talk about people being pressured, and I know there was a lot of discussion at the summits about pilots having to work really long hours and the training changes that people are suggesting. Could you talk about what is human factors and what does it mean in aviation? It's everything in aviation. Just as we relearned in the MAX tragedies, that if you don't account for the baseline, the natural human reaction or the natural human effect of pushing a, a human being to the limits, whether it be length of day, like we're talking about, you're alluding to the post-pandemic things, they're all going to intersect at the same place. Those are incidents and sometimes accidents. So this is the energy we have on this is, is almost like, are you kidding me? Can't you see this coming? This is the max tragedies in a different wrapper. Yeah. The yeah. good news is 
that we see it coming. And you referenced this training change. I sent you the letter we sent from the union. We're being very proactive on this. Last summer, to the acting administrator, currently Billy Nolan, and he's listed seven or eight areas where they've decreased training for our pilots. And the response, while professionally worded, were horrid. The response was, I'll paraphrase, it says, we have reviewed this and we've not found anything that American is doing to be in violation of regulation or policy. As you may know, on the flight deck, the last thing I want to hear from my first officer is, Captain, it's legal. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's safe or smart. And that is the human factor side of it. It's yeah. not a binary decision. I love the fact that you jump right in. No BS. Crew resource management is a big thing. When I hear people talk about human factors, the decision-making that it must occur when individuals are stressed, you know, making sure that the whole crew was talking and, and that everybody was respectful of each other. But when you have individuals, they have not enough sleep and fatigue. And I'm not just talking about pilots or flight attendants. I'm also talking about mechanics and technicians, air traffic controllers, you know, the whole group of people that are behind keeping airplanes safe in the world. When we were at that summit, I think I counted in the first 20 minutes, I think I counted 10 times where somebody said, and it was typically a government official that said, we have the safest aviation system in the world. And a couple minutes later, somebody else could, did I tell you that we have the safest aviation system in the world? And I could see people around me that were just leaning forward in their chairs like, okay, that's not acceptable just to have that mindset. Because if you can't see that there's a lot of variables right now that are stressing aviation, when you think of training, for example, I want to talk about this because this is fundamental to everything I think anybody involved in aviation knows. But tell me some of the things that are being suggested in terms of the changes in, in training that are being proposed. Well, first off, you brought in a whole truckload of absolutely dead on points. The condition of the human factor, the human being from the production line, which you know very well, when you have accelerated and pressurized that system of the professionals that are putting that airplane together, let alone, let's go even further back to the uh, desk where the engineers are creating this engineering miracle based in science. Now we'll go up the line. You had mentioned, you know, and I heard the same thing. We've got the greatest safety record ever. And absolutely, you should be proud of that. But as Captain Sully Sullenberger said in his testimony on the MAX at Congress, and I'm going to not get it as eloquently phrased as him, is the absence of accidents should not be the point of action to determine whether or not we're proactive going forward. He was much more eloquent at it. The bottom line is, prior military, it's getting really quiet around here. I'm getting a little unnerved. And that's exactly the way we should look at this. Getting to the training side, the, one of the core issues on the MAX, other than having a horridly designed piece of equipment that was on the airplane, it had no limits, had no boundaries, and could leave the pilot with an airplane that is irrecoverable, was that they did not give us full training on that system if it went awry, like it did. And that came out of the max findings that we weren't trained. Heck, the checklist for runaway stabilizer trim. I was in that infamous recorded meeting where Boeing came in to do damage repair. First time they came to our headquarters ever. And that, that often cited in documentaries interview, they were dismissive. I was one to say, they said, look, this is just a runaway stabilizer. Something that has been on the airplane forever. And I, I started in Boeing 707s, instructing in the military on KC-135s. I know the Boeing equipment of that Apollo era iteration. And for the test pilot from Boeing to say, it's just a runaway trim. Well, first off, we had the checklist. 
And the very first thing, the condition of the checklist says, trim runs continuously. Well, guess what? The MCAS runs in burst of 10 on, 5 off. So right off the bat, what you're referring to that should have been the thing that would save the airplane that you were counting on, that single point of failure, me, you didn't even give me accurate information. Now, I'm going to the way back clock. But what's important about that point is today, we have a huge wave of experienced pilots coming to, say, American Airlines, United Delta, Southwest, and coming up to the regionals. But they're unseasoned. This is no malice against them. Just like I started coming out of the military, I had a lot of experience flying in the desert, people shooting at us. But when I jumped into American Airlines, it was a different operation. And the airplane I was on was different than what I could have come from. So the most important glue to ensuring that doesn't come apart is the pilot training. And commercial interests come in all the time lately to reduce training where we can. That sounds like a pejorative. It is because that's the end result. But what they're looking at is how can we get more people through this pipeline? Post-pandemic, the pipeline is full. And so instead of taking their time, broadening the pipeline, what they're doing is let's reduce the training to the minimum the FA requires. And that's why we're so agitated by this. Uh, the example I give, the five or six that we sent to the FAA, one that I just got out of my recurrent training is done annually now. It used to be done every nine months. I'll give you one a little more graphic. American Airlines for decades has gone into Guatemala City. It's a high terrain, unusual runway, undulating. It's got a lot of threats in it. It is a what we call a hit city. It basically is a high threat city. You have to study up before you go. And one of the features we had was to have an instructor pilot, a Czech pilot with us on our first go, show you the ropes, kind of jumps into the foxhole with you. And it was extremely important to have that. Well, the FAA doesn't require it. So after doing it for decades, management said, hey, I can unleash one of those Czech pilots. You won't have to go with Captain Tager. Captain Tager can just look at an iPad course. I think For their fir first time preparing to land at that airfield. Time. First officer and I, first time we're going, hey, did you look at the iPad course? Yeah, I checked it out at Starbucks. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. I'm using the same words that I used when we were talking about the Max, which we learned later. They didn't even give us an iPad course. As a matter of fact, the MCAS wasn't even in our manuals. I thought American did it a nine-month cycle for your annual training. Are you saying they're extending that to 12 months, or did I miss that? No, you nailed it. Years ago, the captains went through every six months. Uh, the FAA loosened that up, and American went to the nine-month plan for everybody. Um, this is well before the pandemic. So the nine-month plan was working for everybody, no issues at all. We liked it. It was the sweet spot. And then coming out of the pandemic, think of that, coming out of the pandemic, high recovery, staffing shortages, early retirements, American Airlines said, guess what? We can do this every 12 months. Some carriers do it that way. But we changed from what we were doing in the past. So we went to 12 months. I just went through, this will be my second 12-month course. And I got to tell you, going every nine months versus going every 12, is a whole different training experience. The training yeah. is still good. But man, we are going through engine failures, runaway trim, terrain events, you know, wind shear, mm -hmm. Now they pack it all into an extended length. There's an extra day and a half or two on there. The bottom line is we're getting it done, but why would you inject that? And by the way, the reason they injected it was so that they would have less touch time with instructors. They're short on instructors. So this was all a commercial interest decision. Yes, legal, but once again, 
just because it's legal doesn't mean it's safe or smart. Commercial decision-making, let's be blunt, it's about money. It's about saving money or making money. And when you see those types of changes where you decide to, to alter your training program to save a couple bucks, the cost of one accident, one accident would pay for training for decade probably for all the pilots and the crew. I have to tell you that I'm getting the EBGBs here listening to you talk because it is almost like we haven't learned. And that you can expect the public to forget about some of these things because it's not in their daily world, aviation and being around planes. But for people that are in the industry, when you hear about, for example, the crew alerting system for the MAX, um, I know you took a very strong stance, said, look, this technology on the Boeing airplanes is 70s and 80s technology at best. And when you think the law changed over, what, 12 years ago and required modern alerting systems be installed in these airplanes, and the Boeing company went out and lobbied Congress again and got another exemption to, to not install a modern alerting system. I mean, from a pilot perspective, what do you think about that when you think about what we could be doing and what we are doing? It's just insane. There's a reason that the, those alert systems, modern alert systems around airplanes, is because they make a difference. And yes, you're right. Boeing got the opportunity to come in and lobby their way through the door and continue to get a carve out for that modern alert system. We fought the fight that we had at the time to try and get the Max 7 and 10 because the Congress actually had to make a law. This was so darn important. Congress made a law that every aircraft going forward will now have to have this. There'll be no more exemptions as it would be. And they gave it a two-year clock. Boeing said, look, we've had some trouble getting it certified to 7 and 10, so we're not going to make the deadline. And long story short, they were able to lobby their way into getting the aircraft, the 7 and 10, allowed to be certified without this modern alert system. Now, there were other unions that thought that it might be confusing for a pilot. Boeing made that case. The bottom line is it was going to cost money and maybe a little bit of time. But those alert systems, you talk to any pilot who uses them on their aircraft, and they can't imagine not having it there. It unclutters all those, the cacophony of alerts, especially on the 737. Rather than go to the rear view mirror on this, the bottom line is it didn't, we weren't successful in that. But sometimes you do the right things for the right reasons, and you can look in the mirror and keep your eyes open. So we're taking dad's old Buick and trying to make it a Tesla, slapping an iPad with duct tape on the dashboard and putting in other things. It's, it's an airplane that, I don't want to make humor of it, but the max is at its max. It's beyond its max. Good God, Boeing, build an airplane that's modern. You know, Dennis, some of the incidents that we've looked at over the past year or two concerning the MAX, pilots are still shuffling with paper checklists. They're being characterized as everything is normal. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that because people, I think, just have this notion that everything is perfect and there's still a lot there that needs to be fixed. There is. And this would be the absolute worst time to decrease your training for all these unseasoned pilots coming in. If you just, it's called back of the simulator. You know, when you're in the back of the sim, you can see all this stuff happening because you're not in that straw view mm -hmm. when you see an alert go off. And we're in the back of the sim right now. It's like, see it all happening right now. You're reducing training. You've got commercial pressures on you. And by the way, I know very well, I've been doing it at American for over 30 years. It takes airflow over the wing and money flow. This is a business, but it can't be a business that is absent the moral obligation to do everything you can to ensure that aircraft is flown safely. 
from the people to the equipment. It's just, you can never release from that. It has to be an obsessive passion that you have. And yes, we know it's a business, but as you said earlier, if you think it costs more to put that on, wait till you see what happens if you don't. Yeah. And that is the key. It's a balance, but you know, we talked about the safety summit and it was a talk of, look, we want to be respectful when we engage. We went into a closed session and I get that. But here's the deal about safety culture. And I know you get this. Safety culture is not a commune. It is a safe place for you and I to challenge how we're doing something, mm -hmm. all with the ultimate goal of ensuring that safety margin is as broad as possible. There is no offense there. And if someone takes offense of your wording is coarse and all that, look, if I'm not doing it right, if we're doing an approach and the first officer thinks I'm not getting something procedurally correct or jeopardizing the margin of safety, I don't need pleasantries. I need quick action, point it out. Let's get out of here and fix that. Yeah, Dennis, I'm definitely interested in getting your perspective as a, someone who's been a highly regarded pilot for over 35 years. Some people may be surprised that you may be meeting your first officer for the first time. Yeah. And flight attendants that you're working with, the whole crew, what does that mean in terms of having that honest conversation? Well, I'm elated and I'm excited by your question because as you were talking and you brought up the word honest, because I was immediately, as soon as you said crew resource management, I said the basis of it is trust. It's not only trust person to person, it's trust that you have done your job as a professional, whether it be as a flight attendant, the mechanic downstairs, you've done everything that you can to ensure that you're ready for, I'll say it in a military term, mission. And in a commercial business, there's never a, hey, we've got to go. But that mission to an honest study of your profession, to develop the trust that not develop, it's a given. When you walk on my flight deck, I trust that you're prepared to do this. And the, the seed for that and the water and the fertile ground for that is in the training. It's in developing an aircraft that connects with the human factor. Not like you hope it's going to be like Boeing did when they said, oh, the pilots will react to this within four seconds and then rectify it within 10. That's not how the real world works. That's how someone who's trying to generate a spreadsheet answer sets up the data. So crew resource management, that's everything. The engineering goes nowhere until the human being is connected to it. And the crew resource management, when I have a first officer come in, most of the time it is the first time I've worked with them and same for them and the flight attendants and of course my ground crew. So we are all nestled in, and I'm so glad you brought this up because there's a change at American Airlines that just happened in January that hit the media as well. We have practices and scripts. We're not actors, but it's a signal and an affirmation that we're getting done what we're supposed to get done. Why I connect this to American Airlines? On January 3rd, a few weeks prior to that, they dumped a 35-page training manual, a reading assignment, connected to about 65 pages in our actual manual. And they said, hey, we're going to change the script for how we fly airplanes, which we weren't against. It's called fleet harmonization. Keep the things you say and do across the fleets as common as possible. But they tried to do this with no iPad training. We didn't even get the courtesy of that. Just a reading assignment and said, hey, on January 3rd, we're going to start that. And get this. It wasn't just simple maneuvers at cruise. These were at time critical phases of flight, go around, low visibility approaches. And while you look at it and see four or five things changed, and you think it's just a couple of different action points and words, they're at a time 
where seconds matter. And the script has to be not just read, but executed with perfection. So as captain, I fly to 737, of course, the MAX and the NG. We have a HUD. That's my hands on the airplane, flying it down to 50 feet above the ground before I see the landing environment. So what the first officer has to say to me, what he sees or she sees or I'm seeing is so important to those last moments, right on down to the go around where we've changed some of our scripts. So you couldn't be doing this at the more wrong time than right now. Are you saying that this information is coming out via like a notice or a bulletin? Am I understanding this right? Nailed it. It's like the max when they, you know, we know Boeing's, oh, it's very complicated. No, it's not. This is what the airplane does. You designed it that way. This is what American has put forth. We protested it, not only with the FAA. We went to the FAA again, just like the summer letter. And the FAA said, well, what they're doing is not illegal. So you're good to go. The header for our announcement to our pilots on this and the world was unwise and unsafe. That was the header. It was meant to grab attention. I just went through my training and I got to tell you, God love my instructors, but they hadn't been brought in on the early point. I said, how are we doing this? What's the latest? Well, let me catch you up on it as much as possible, but we're just learning this as well. Imagine that, your instructor coming to you and no, no harm on them. Hey kid, I'm going to teach you how to fly the airplane. I'm new at this and they don't give me much training. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Go check the Google machine. You'll hear our protests on this and we don't protest for attention. We protest for change. Does your training department or these training departments that are coming up with these ideas, they like floated by the union before they make a decision? And is there any sense of talking with you guys on this before? This seems like a core fundamental thing that should happen. It has happened in the past. They used to do that. They don't do it anymore. It's like they pour the concrete and they point to the driveway and they go, there it is. What do you think? It's drying. Hang on a minute. Why don't you call me when you decide what mix to get? So long mm-hmm. metaphors aside, no, wow. they didn't. They, it was a few weeks prior to said, hey, here's what we're going to do. And our union said, whoa, wait a minute. We actually went to our principal operating inspector, our president did, and said, I'm concerned about this. And he said, yeah, I see your point, all those pages. Let me go look at it. That POI went back to American Airlines, who he's assigned to. And he came back and he goes, yeah, I looked at it, the big picture on it. It's really only a few things that changed. So you're good to go. And actually lectured our president for a short time about giving him such a late call. Our president calls the FAA when there's alarm and cause for concern. The safety summit takeaway after the meeting that we were at, one of the takeaways, and we talked about this unseasoned workforce from below the wing to above the wing. And they actually said, we've got to ensure that our safety management system, SMS, when it comes to training, takes into account the high rate of change and churn. I'm almost quoting it as we go forward. Do you think? That's what we've been saying well over a year ago. Now, here's the key. Safety management system, you know as well as I do, that's not a system to check for something being legal. That's a system that checks that the human factors have been brought in, the natural performance of people, the equipment, the integration. And they're saying, hey, we ought to look at that. (laughs) Last summer, the director or the acting administrator said, well, it's, it's legal, so not much we can do. This disconnect, And now this rejoining now, the formation is rejoining, but it's only rejoining after enemy fire of incidents have happened. And now they're all wingtip with us saying, yeah, we got to look at that. When all is said and done, often more is said than is done. Let that not be the case with this. You know, the safety management system, you talking about hitting a raw nerve. You just drilled right into my heart and my nerves. I worked inside the Boeing factory, as you know, and I came from military background. 
What I've heard since the disasters is that Boeing has implemented a new safety management system. And you're talking about safety management systems in the airlines and at the airports and everything else. And in the production environment, I will tell you that they championed this safety management system as this was a big change after the MAX disasters, right? And that now employees were going to be able to report anonymously issues in whatever it was, design, manufacturing, test and flight, whatever. And they'd have an opportunity to get people to investigate these concerns and whether they were legal or not, these were legitimate concerns that people had and that somebody needs to look into and try to address. Because I was on these site safety committees for most of my career, almost all of it at the Boeing Company. And these were voluntary committees of union and management. And we had a safety management system. There was a safety management system before the MAX disasters. We had it. And employees could submit anonymous reports. There was an expectation that management was would act upon it and would look into these things and try to address these unresolved issues. The problem was Nobody in headquarters looked at it. People were frustrated and they were concerned. So they submitted these things. I, like everybody else, thought these were being forwarded and there was an executive group or part of the board of directors or some committee or somebody was looking at this stuff beyond the people in these voluntary safety committees. And it wasn't until after the crashes that I realized that no one was looking at it. No one was even paying attention. There was not a regular safety meeting with the board of directors at the Boeing company. I found this out through the shareholders lawsuit that occurred in Delaware. And I couldn't believe it. Stunning. Uh, it's stunning. Stu- unbelievable that this is happening. And so what I, it's laughable because safety management systems have been around for what, decades? We've had different types of databases, but this notion of being honest to report problems and to address them has been around for how long? I mean, it was around when you were in the, in yeah, the Air Force, and, right? I, absolutely. And the irony is that that system is there to actually protect your balance sheet. No yeah. accidents. No, no undue cost to that. You know, the human tragedy as well, of course. And then you're going to sell more airplanes. It's so dysfunctional. It's like, come on, man. I'm giving you fertile ground, seed, water, sun. And what do you do? You throw a blanket over it. Yeah. It's just. You uh, smother it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, and I'll tell you, safety management systems, I think in the uh, new certification program, and I, uh, excuse me if I get the acronym wrong, but there's a safety analysis assessment or something like that, SSA, or I could be off in that. These are buckets of acronyms and like a temporary tattoo. If you let time wear away and you don't actively engage in that program, then it's just a slogan, a punchline. And these are great programs. They've grown and they have a lot of support. But as you found in your experiences, that if they don't get pushed up to the front office or worse yet in the reality, that the C-suite does not ask, hey, what's going down on the engineering side? Hey, what are my line pilots saying? That silo effect can be deadly. Yeah. I wanted to shift gears for a second because speaking of deadly, I'm going to harken back to when you were in the military, if I could. And a fundamental thing in aviation that I was always trained on was the importance of inspection. And when we have maintenance personnel in the Navy, for example, for me and Air Force for you, go out and get your plane ready for a flight. They're out there doing all their checks, inspections. You know, if there's work that's done, they have to they do an engine change, complexity of this. They have to do lots of double checking, making sure there's no foreign object debris, making sure all the tools are accounted for, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, even just going ready for the flight, our plane would take a three-hour pre-flight. That was, that's how long it took us to get all our systems checked and inspected before we went flying. And I wanted to ask you if you had heard of this program called Boeing's Quality Transformation Program. I wanted to ask you if you've ever heard of that. I have not. Is it a recent okay. one? 
I got to tell you, I just found out about it this summer myself, and it was going on even when I was working in the 737 factory. But more recently, it was called verification optimization, which is quite the interesting term. But let me just get your reaction to this. As an airplane goes down a production line, as you can imagine, there's hundreds of employees that are working on on the plane. As the plane goes down the assembly line, we have three assembly lines, right? And so we're pumping out 50 airplanes a month, basically building a plane every eight to 10 days. And as the plane goes down the line, there's three shifts of people working on it. And there's literally hundreds and hundreds of people that are doing their various jobs. They all have assigned jobs. And when they get their parts and they have adequate rest and all that kind of stuff, their tooling and all that, they do amazing work. It's just, you're, you can't help but be overly Im- impressed with that. But during the work, as the work progress, employees stop and have to get inspection. Right. You have yeah, to figure okay. out, check the work as they go. And they, it's another set of eyes, you know, so even if you're an experienced employee, if you're tired or rushed or whatever, but it's another person looking at your work and saying, oh, okay, Dennis, that looks good. Or, hey, Dennis, you made a mistake here. They got to go back and fix this. So these inspections. Set and cross check, just like we do on the flight deck. Yeah, exactly. Set and cross check. So it is a, a bread and butter thing. In fact, the, there's law, the, there's actual federal aviation regulations and Code of Federal Regulations that speak to the importance of these inspections and getting these inspections done when you're building a plane. And this program, this QA transformation plan, apparently started in the 737 factory prior to the building of the MAX airplanes. The short version of the story is a month after the Lion Air crash occurred, there was announcement to the union up in Everett, Washington, which is our you know Twin Isle factory up north in Washington state. And the announcement was that there was this QA transformation plan that had started and it was going to eliminate inspections, to reduce inspections. And the logic, I guess, was that these inspections slowed things down, right? They slowed production down. We have thousands of airplanes on back order. And so there was an idea to, to remove inspections. And these inspection removals occurred and Boeing let the union know about it in November 2018, a couple of weeks after the Lion Air crash. Wow. And they let people know about it then. And then between the crashes, there was additional removals of inspections. If I told you that there was a removal of hundreds of inspections that have been in place for decades, what's your initial thought of that? Today, it doesn't surprise me, but that cannot be normalized. You talked about these inspections, these checkpoints these professionals, they're like, I'll say it with respect to us being human beings, each of us are gears in this. Anytime one of those gears has misaligned teeth or doesn't have teeth at all, it will downline cause a serious problem effect. It's fate is a hunter. The smallest decision, the, the error that is not trapped can lead to so many other things down the line. My reaction is where the hell is the FAA on this? I'm as alarmed and angered by it as you might be. Why would you take, let's go to the iconic 737 and you can go through the cycles and say how safe it's been. Why has it been that way? Why did it have a safety record up until the max? Maybe what you were doing was good to go. And back to, even American has done this on overhauls they send down to Central and South America. They've reduced the actual functional check flights out of there because they're not required. So one of our pilots that no longer works there because they brought it into management, kind of gathered up the sycophants so that they know the system won't have any bumps, which is another corporate disease. They're not testing systems. They're just taking them in a normal flight, landing them in Dallas and loading people up. Unless the captain had a write-up on it, all good to go. 
Well, as this test pilot that I know said, how do you know it's not broken if you don't test it? Yeah. Backup systems, things that we don't do with passengers, of course. So this is a systemic thing going on in the industry right now is how do we do it cheaper and more efficiently? In other words, push the numbers out. So you know, I don't want people to be alarmed in this, but you have to take comfort in there's folks like you. There's folks, pilot unions started in the aviation side was because, hey, kid, fly the airplane. Well, it's unsafe. Well, then you're fired. Let's get somebody else. Those days are not gone because there's plenty of carriers that still pressure young pilots on small airplanes. Yep. But this, this is not a popularity contest. This is about keeping people safe and alive. And uh, that's something I think that, that is lost in the bureaucracy of things. It doesn't mean that we can't get along as human beings, but when it comes to a safety discussion, that's locked and loaded on, on, on the front lines. And uh, there's no games here. There's no pleasantries needed. As a matter of fact, pleasantries just get in the way of repairing the safety margin. So I'm offended by that. Tell me like it is, and then we'll go get lunch and talk about our families later. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, it's worse than, than you may have thought. Is anyone looking at this? Well, the first question you asked was really valid question is what's the FAA doing? And here's what I've been able to find out. They not only removed hundreds of inspections, Dennis, they actually removed thousands of inspections on every single airplane, Dennis. Even though I spent my entire military career around airplanes, maintaining them and flying them and all that, I never saw a plane put together piece by piece. I went into the factory thinking this is going to be a piece of cake. Well, I was definitely wrong. It was a very steep learning curve to see the complexity of the infrastructure being built, the wings being attached, the engines being attached, all, all the systems. It was amazingly complex. And this idea that a decision was made via a spreadsheet to remove inspections. Boeing didn't let people know that they had removed those inspections prior to the MAX airplanes being built. So the Lion airplane and the Ethiopian airplane were some of those airplanes that didn't get thousands of inspections. Including some that I'm flying now, I'm sure. That's my next point. My next point is there, there was hundreds of airplanes that have been built. Even though the union, the IAM union, Boeing's machinist union, as soon as they heard about this, they were all over it. And they're like, this is a really dangerous idea. And they've been fighting it. The union has fought it for four or five years. What are you thinking as a pilot when I tell you that there are planes out there that are flying with thousands of less inspections than planes that were built prior to that plane? It's enraging. It's like coming up and saying, hey, Captain, I didn't do the checklist, but we're good to go. Are you kidding me? Do the checklist. Do the inspection. Do the things that built, that, like we talked about before. And I've seen this you know, in the military. You talked about, I had a crew chief. That was their airplane. When I walked up, got a swift salute. Here's the book. And here's the latest on the airplane. And that was their baby. And they knew that even as a young man, I was counting on that aircraft to protect my crew to go refuel something that was probably going to have a not only a strategic advancement, but a life-saving uh, feature to the men and women down on the ground, which I lived through in Desert Storm. So to hear someone in a cubicle is cutting back on something that it's basically like saying, hey, look, there are a couple of rounds in your rifle that are blanks. Good luck. you got to be kidding me. I can't come up with a metaphor because there is no metaphor. It's just flat out wrong. And I tell you, we've been talking about Boeing and we're going to the negative side of it. But as I told you, I was raised in a Boeing airplane. I instructed in it. It saved my tail in Desert Storm. That kept together. We pushed it to the edge. And yeah, it's a 707. It's not pulling G's and rolling around. You got problems over Baghdad. You got a problem. So you're counting on every 
piece that goes into that to save your tail and get you back home, let alone defending our country. Boeing is still an amazing company. It lost its way. It still has not found it. I have not heard anything from senior leadership who are the ones that brought it off the track that tells me that they get it. I hear slogans. I hear these acronyms. And you talk about decreasing quality checks. I've thought of a a losing baseball team that says, hey, I know how we can lose less games. Let's play less. It's just insane. And the most frustrating part about it is sometimes, and it comes in moments where I listen to the FA and some of the Macs roll out and a different administrator talking tough when the CEO said, hey, we're going to deliver the airplane by some month. And he said, no, wait a minute. That's our call, not yours. The FA has to revisit that. They have but one customer. It's the American taxpayer. They don't work for the airlines. They don't work for the pilot unions. They work for the American traveler who pays taxes in this country. And globally, they say they set the standard. There's a little chink in that armor right now. And it's something that it's going to take a while for people to rebuild that trust. And Boeing cutting back on what it did in the foundational days to keep things safe, cutting back is only going to be the acid that washes away that trust rebuild that we're trying to get back. I'm a big fan of where Boeing was. I'm not a big fan of where they were recently. And I don't see much more encouraging other than the words. And words don't fly airplanes. It's engineering, it's people, and it's procedures. It's those quality check items. And by the way, you mentioned about the, who's doing the oversight, the quality check on the quality checks. It sounds humorous and redundant, but it's that important. The smallest of things, that one decision that someone makes can create an absolute disaster up in the sky. You know, Dennis, you're really articulate about this, and I appreciate that very clear position on this. We've talked about this on this program about you don't take chances like that to, to cut corners to make a buck. And you talked about the 707 airplane and the amazing history of the company. I mean, it helped us win wars. It's a huge player in our national security. I have tremendous respect for the company and the employees that I've worked with. I had I have some very good friends that work there. My father-in-law was retired Boeing. I live in an area where there's Boeing everywhere. And I'm proud of the company, but it's a leadership issue. It's an absolute leadership failure. And you, you touch upon the fact that we have to rebuild that trust. And you don't re- rebuild trust by making these kinds of cuts. I mean, could you imagine family members that lost loved ones on the Ethiopian crash hearing this, that there was decisions to remove inspections that had been in place for decades. And even after the first crash, they did it again. That's what this is really about. All the statements behind a podium, come on out to where it happened. Come out to the crash sites. Get on one of my airplanes. I'm flying a day after tomorrow. And look at those 170 people in back. You know, life's treasure there. And it's not so much the full family on there. Let me give you one. You're a dad, you're a mom, and you're sending your family off onto an airplane and you're entrusting. It's, you're not on it. It might be worst case scenario. And think of those families. There were families in those 737 MAX crashes where their loved ones, their wife, mother-in-law, kids lost, and you're still here. The tragedy is there's no measure of it anywhere, but when someone hands me their life's treasure and says, take care of it, I am trusting everybody involved in this to give me the weaponry and the armor plating to defend all adversaries from invading that level of trust given to me. 
And I think Boeing could learn a little lesson, grab the human component of this. And bottom line is when things come undone on an airplane, we're trained for it. But I'm counting on every bit of engineering. I'm counting on every procedure and every other professional and human being on there to help me get this done. This is not just your regular business. It goes well, and it goes well because we prepare for it, we're trained for it, and we never take for granted. There's a reason we run checklists. It's because it matters. So do your checklist, study up, and take on an obsessive passion to defend that margin of safety. And it has many adversaries. So get ready, join the fight, and stand with us. This is a great profession. It's a great industry, but it'll only stay that way if we continue our commitment to fight against all the headwinds that are out there. And they're out there. Dennis, I can't think of a better way of closing this interview. Do you have anything you would like to add to this discussion? I do, actually. Um, You talked in the beginning of our podcast here of, hey, you were out there, you were talking about the issue. Hell, we were just talking about the truth, what we saw. There was a time when we got a little bit of battle fatigue, and I remember clearly speaking with a large media outlet, and she was confirming for her editor, said, I just want to make sure we've got this fact checked. I really need to check it one more time. And I said, yep, we confirmed it. And I just said, you know, and I'll leave the name out. I said, I'm getting really tired. This is, I feel like we're out here alone. And that journalist said, just hang on. I can't tell you, but there are other people coming out of the woodwork. And to every one of those who may be listening to this podcast, thank you for stepping up and putting your name on the line or putting out the reports that were there. You have no idea what difference it made at the very kitchen table I speak to you from right now while I spoke with my family. And they said, hey, dad, aren't you worried about maybe losing your job? And I remember being teared up and saying, there's no choice. It's the right thing to do. We got to do it. We got to do it. So to every one of those people that stepped up, including yourself, that said, I'm going to do the right thing for the right reasons, the chips fall where they may, we can all stand in front of the mirror with our eyes wide open. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dennis. 